Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation. It's Aloha Friday, October 20th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us. A heads up for small business owners, ever considered government contracts? Learn about the ins and outs of landing one. The Hawaii Audubon Society holds its annual meeting and dinner next week, and bird enthusiasts are welcome. There's good and bad news, including why the Society is keeping Audubon in its name, though others have dropped the reference to the founder of the national organization. And the Daughters of Hawaii are holding an online auction to fundraise for two palaces. It includes antique furniture, china, and jewelry. And the Hawaii Book and Music Festival kicks off this weekend. Why it needs your support to return to an in-person festival next year. It hits you like a melody you long to hear The presence of aloha dancing everywhere Everywhere There's nothing like a flower lay The fragrance of a home and a warm embrace So let it take your heart and your breath away Your breath away This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Local companies looking for more financial stability may want to consider doing business with federal, state, or county governments. So how do you get those contracts? Well, you can learn about it at an upcoming Hawaii Government Contracting Forum. The event is in its 18th year and gives small businesses a chance to get access to those in the know. Uh, Chris Rachel is the director of the University of Hawaii's Hawaii Minority Business Development Agency. It's organizing the forum. He sat down in our studio with the conversations with Russell Subiono. What are some of the reasons a local business would want to procure a contract with a government entity? I think working with the government adds a few things. One, it's uh, stable income. The government also pays, and the government has a lot of work. And so the government doesn't tend to have like upswings and downswings. It tends to be, if you were to get like some type of a contract to do maintenance for the airport, that contract could be five years long. And based off of that, it could help your company get a little bit more stability and help you scale up. The perception that it's stable work and stable pay, that's that's a pretty accurate perception. I feel like that's probably what the average person thinks about when they think about a government contract is, is stability. What are the drawbacks? Are there any drawbacks to entering into a government contract? There are some. And they're mainly internal within a company itself. So if you do have some type of issues internally in your company, like you're really unable to scale up, that could be an issue. And we have had contractors in the past where we've got them large contracts. For instance, we had a company that we got them a $25 million contract, and it would definitely help them scale up. But they were under so much stress, and they could not hire a fair amount of employees. It took them a little bit. They were eventually able to do it and they have scaled up and they've went from a small business to, for lack of better words, a medium-sized business. But what it did was it did uh, illustrate some of the internal issues. That's a good point because I still get the sense that businesses are still having trouble finding staff. I've seen some restaurants have to scale back on hours and menu because of staff issues. Do you get the sense that local businesses are still experiencing a hardship trying to find staff at this point in time? So I think it depends on which industry you're in, right? And definitely a lot of the service industries, they are. And I think on some of the industries, it's probably not as bad. And so when you think about scalability, what are some of the other traits of businesses that would be ready to procure a government contract? What state of the life of a business should your business be in? Depending on which industry you're in, they do have contracts that are small, medium, and large. And some industries wouldn't facilitate like smaller contracts, perhaps if you're you know, within the energy industry or fuel industry, and they would probably want larger contracts. But like domestics, like with cleaning and organizing places and stuff, those ones, they do have a lot of small contracts where they're just looking for somebody to clean like eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. So it would depend on what industry you're in. But I think if you've been in business for probably about two years, And there's a reason why that number comes up over and over. 
when you first get into business, perhaps the entrepreneur or the person that's running the business is doing the accounting, they're doing the work, they're operating out of their home, perhaps their billing has some issues, perhaps they have a lot of small issues and then it's hard to scale up because that one person can't do everything. So typically after somebody's in business a year, year and a half, they'll start to scale up and they'll get accountants and they'll have people that are able to help them running day by day. And as soon as you get to that point that you have a few employees and you have the internal structure built within your company and whatever your product or service is, if you have that well honed, you're ready to go. They're also looking at some past performance where you can show them I've done this, I've completed that, and this was the end result. Because every contract that the government looks at, they do do their due diligence in order to make sure that when you have all the proper certifications, you've done that type of work in the past, you have the proper bonding. And if you don't have the proper bonding, this is where service providers like SBA, MBDA, PTAC, all the rest of them come in because we actually help you to be in the position in order to start to scale up or build up. What are some of the kind of general steps a business would have to go through to be able to get into a contract with the government? I imagine there's a bidding process. I imagine there's a few other steps before contracts are actually signed. I imagine it varies by by industry, but what are some of the steps that are kind of common across the industries? So I'm going to put out some of the basic ones that I think that are given. One, you need to have a business. Two, you're paying taxes. Three, if you are a business and you're planning on doing business with uh, like the military, Department of Defense, it has to be a United States-owned business. It can't be something that's owned by you know Republic of China or some of the other ones and trying to do business with the U.S. government. So one, it has to be uh, owned by you know a U.S.-based company. You have to have a solid bank account. And then after that, what we do is we get you into a system that's called the SAM system. And what that does is it allows you to start bidding on contracts. And once you are in that system, then you could start to get like certificates. One would be like woman-owned business. Another one could be a disadvantaged business, a minority-owned business. You could get like an 8A distinction or service-disabled small business veteran or hub zone. And every single one of those distinctions or certifications for your business gives you a little bit of clout or a little bit of leverage when you start to bid on any contracts. And then after you are in that systems acquisition management system or SAM system, you would start to see notices every day when contracts come out that are based in the area that you work on. And then you could actually upload bids to that same platform. It actually sounds relatively easy. I think there's that stereotype out there that working with the government is a lot of paperwork and a a lot of red tape. At this point, I just wanted to talk about the upcoming forum. I know there are local people available to help businesses put themselves in a position to get into the system to be able to bid on, on government contracts. Can you talk about what kind of help is available at this upcoming forum? So the the forum that we're having, we've had for multiple years. This is like the 18th annual one. And what I guess is one of the major draws of the forum is that we try to keep the forum affordable. We have other forums that are similar to ours that they're like $2,500. Ours is about 100 bucks. What we're trying to do is just to cover the costs. And so in the Department of Defense, a contract will come out and they have people that write that contract. And then they have people that grade the contract and people that choose from the people that actually submit their proposals. Now, all of those entities will be at our forum. The people who actually put that contract out, the people who are choosing from the submissions. And so you'll be able to talk with, face-to-face, with everybody that's involved within that process. And that way, if you have a question like, well, why am I not getting a contract, or what should I do better, or how would I even go about this, and what would make me more attractive to the government, 
you could speak to them and they will give you the honest answer right on spot. We also help clients or customers that are exporting, and we do a lot of exporting to other countries. We're really good at exporting to Vietnam, Taiwan, and all of Southeast Asia, if there are some listeners that are interested in that. Our local office, even though we are very small, last year we assisted clients and closed a little bit north of $25 billion in contracts. Wow. And we were the number one office in the nation. All the other MBDA offices combined did, I think, around $5 billion. And so we were a little bit north of $25 billion by ourselves. So if you are looking for help closing contracts or even financing, we can also assist you there. We uh, help our clients close every year a minimum of $100 million in financing. And I think the lowest that we've been in the last 10 years is somewhere around 700, 750 million in contracts wow. that we help our clients close. And our services are free. Chris Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate talking to you. Thank you, sir. That was Chris Rochelle talking to HBR's Russell Subiono about the Hawaii Government Contracting Forum. It takes place Wednesday, October 25th at the Honolulu Country Club. Look for links to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting The Moth, live and on stage, celebrating the diversity and commonality of human experience in an evening of storytelling Friday, October 27th. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. This week on Science Friday, an astronomer takes on a massive question. Are we alone in this universe? Through sheer numbers alone, in my mind, it's unlikely that it's only us. Can looking to the stars help us find meaning on Earth? Plus, we'll take you on a mission to investigate an asteroid made of metal. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Honolulu Civil Beats lead stories about a gun buyback program being held this weekend. Reporter Madeline List is with us today for our reality check. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, buyback programs aren't anything new, but we haven't had one for a while. Yes, this is the first buyback program being hosted in Honolulu in decades. Um, But it's the first one since the 2022 Supreme Court uh, Bruin decision, which expanded gun owners' rights to carry their firearms in public. So since that decision, there's been about 975 licenses to carry issued in Honolulu. So there are much, um, you know, many more people who are able to carry their guns now. So this is coming at an interesting time. Yeah, and uh, at a recent police commission meeting, I know they were talking about the concern of, uh, what is it, ghost guns or just guns getting to the hands of of young people because we've been seeing some terrible shootings lately. Yes, definitely. So violent crime in Hawaii is low, you know, relatively low compared to other places in the country. But there have been some concerning issues happening lately that Honolulu Police Chief Joe Logan mentioned during the meeting. Um, You know, one was involving a deadly shooting at Waianae Boat Harbor. An 18-year-old was charged in that. And another was a fatal shooting at a cockfight in April. And a young teenager was charged with murder in connection to that. So he was concerned that young people might be getting their hands on stolen guns or these ghost guns, which are untraceable. Yes, and that uh, teenager with the cockfight, I believe he was only 16, and he's now being, I think, charged as, a, as an adult. So it's just, it's tragic uh, when you see how lives are just being affected by these guns. Yes, absolutely. And the chief did say, you know, the gun buyback program is just one of many efforts that police are making to, you know, try to help with these issues. And he said, you know, a big part is working really closely with community members. So he did mention that and say that officers are, you know, doing other things to try to work on on these issues of violence, especially as it relates to young people. Yeah, and your article raises the question of, you know, it, it, uh, does do these programs work? 
Uh, but I guess that uh, from the department's point of view, you know, we've got to try something just to make sure um, they don't, you know, end up in the hands uh, of, of people, you know, committing crimes. Yes, exactly. There are very differing opinions on gun buyback programs, but a lot of researchers say there isn't much evidence showing that they really are effective in reducing violence in the communities where they occur. But, you know, law enforcement officials do say, you know, any gun that's taken out of the hands of someone who might use it to do harm, even if it's just one, you know, one harmful incident prevented, then it was a positive step. Well, I distinctly remember that the feds put out a warning, oh, a year or so ago, saying, you know, uh, it's the Alcohol, uh, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, Agency, and they were saying we're seeing a lot more of uh, these guns uh, in, in their cases, and they were just warning uh, law enforcement and the community in general that this is not a good sign. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I have heard from some law enforcement officials that these ghost guns are something that they're seeing, you know, happen more, which is, of course, why, you know, during the gun buyback program, they're offering higher incentives for people to bring in these types of guns. So for, you know, certain types of guns, they're offering $100 gift cards, but for ghost guns, semi-automatic rifles, and any type of automatic firearm, they're offering $200. Okay. And then the, I guess what people know, what do people need to know about these buyback programs? You know, where are they at? Yes, they're taking place at um, two locations on Saturday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. They'll be at the Department of Health parking lot and the Department of Transportation's uh, Y&I corporate base yard. And they're voluntary, completely anonymous. Law enforcement says no questions asked. Just bring your unloaded firearm in your trunk. Someone will come and retrieve it. And then all of the recovered firearms will be destroyed. Okay. And they're also giving out free gun locks. Okay. Yeah. So uh, definitely uh, 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 an event uh, to know about in our community if we want to keep our our communities, our neighborhoods safer. Uh, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Madeline. Thank you. That was reporter Madeline List with today's reality check. Uh, to read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Audubon Society is one of the oldest conservation groups in the islands, and it's gearing up for its annual conference. Six months ago, the national organization decided not to drop Audubon from its name, and the local Hui decided to follow their lead. If you didn't know about this flap, founder John James Audubon owned slaves, and some groups in Chicago, Portland, and Washington, D.C. dropped his name last year. The National Audubon Society felt the name has come to represent so much more than the work of one person, though it must reckon with the racist legacy. Here's Susan Scott, the president of the Hawaii Audubon Society, explaining the local board's decision. We talked about it at our board meeting, and there were pros and cons, and it was not 100% either side, so it was a big discussion, and we decided to wait until National Audubon decided what they were going to do and if they changed we would change to what they decided and they decided not to change so they are still the Audubon Society and so we will stay the same too. There's 450 branches of Audubon groups in the country so that's you know a lot in each state we only have one but some states like California have a lot but uh, we don't get funding from them and they sort of the the guide of how it started, but our Hawaii Audubon started in 1939, so it's really one of the oldest conservation organizations in Hawaii, which was another reason we didn't want to change the name. Right, because there's something in that brand, right? It's a, Yeah, and it's something people really associate with birds, but uh, each Audubon society is its own group and has its own fundraising. Yeah, so, so then they have local groups that uh, are not affiliated uh, per se with the national organization. Uh, and so while some have opted to, to change the name, others have just uh, steadfast and, and, and kept the name. Yes. And, and we are affiliated, but we're not funded by them. 
And so at this meeting uh, this year, the, the annual conference, uh, what's, what's on tap? Well, we're having our annual dinner meeting uh, on November 5th at the African Halal Bishop Museum grounds. And we are excited to have Patrick Hart, who is the charming voice of Manu Minute. And a lot of us really love that show. I, I save my podcast to that to work out at the gym because okay. it's such a happy thing <laughs> that to hear his voice and to hear the bird songs. It really makes the weightlifting go fast. But well, uh, he's, I, I met him once and he is as charming in person as, he, as his voice is on the radio. And so we're, he's our uh, featured speaker at the meeting and it's a, a dinner party and it's really a celebration and a get together of bird fans on the island to eat and, you know, share what's happening in the bird world. So everybody is welcome. It's an annual meeting for members, but guests are welcome also. Well, I know Patrick Hart has a fan club because the Manu Minute is uh, quite popular with our listeners. Uh, And, you know, then the headlines recently, you know, we've seen how um, we don't have uh, some of our natives you know, found in the wild anymore that they believe, you know, they're they're extinct in the wild, which is a very sad thing. Yes. That keeps going. That's going on and on. And one, one of the objectives I had when I became president last year was to highlight some of the native species that are doing well, because we do have some, but we almost never hear any good news about Hawaii's birds. But there is good news. We have the Kalea count, which I started when I joined Hawaii Audubon, and the white terns are doing great in Honolulu. We're one of the only cities that have white terns, and we have wedge-tailed shearwaters all around the islands, and so there are there is some good news, and uh, we're working for the birds that are in trouble, but we also want to celebrate the birds that are doing well. Well, I and just the ones chuckled. That people can see, you know, when you walk around. Well, I just chuckled when the city chose the Manooku as city bird. the city yeah. bird for rail because and that just kind of spotlights uh, more of uh, its story and, and can right. get people interested in birds in a way. Yes, I, I thought it was great. They'll um, want to learn more about them and know that they're here. So When we had the problems with the birds, the one on the mainland, you know, there was some concern, well, what happened to our migratory birds? You know, would they make it back? Would they get sick? But what, so far, so good? So far, so good. And the Kalea count is starting again December 1st. So we you know, have that summer off from counting because they're not here. And then we had really a nice number, over a thousand birds were reported for arrival. So people really were stepped up to report the arrival of their bird or birds they saw in the park. And we did have a wonderful bird come back. Mr. X is his name because he's in the X portion of Punchbowl Cemetery. And he returned this year, which makes him the oldest Pacific Golden Plover. He's 21 years old. Oh, my goodness. That's terrific. That's terrific. And so he's lost the color bands on his legs, but he's still got the aluminum band, so we know it's him. And, uh, yeah, it's quite a, quite an exciting moment when we saw him come back. So We don't know how old he was when he was banded in 2004. That's the kind of success that you're seeing in right. these programs. Yes, and if you don't count and look at them and, and notice them and write it down... Uh, you don't know these things, and so one of the reasons one of the reasons I got involved with the Kalea was when I was writing my newspaper column. People would ask me questions and tell me really great stories, but it wasn't recorded anywhere. And now it is on the Kalea Count website, so that's good. You've written uh, several books, and the Audubon Society also publishes books about birds. Right, right. the Audubon Society publishes one book called Hawaii's Birds, and it's all the birds you'll see in Hawaii, almost all. Not not a hundred percent, but like ninety nine. And so, if you're walking around, and you want to know what birds are on the sidewalk. It it has zebra doves, so it has all the introduced species where they came from. I I love it. I used it when I was a visitor here many years ago because it's first published in 1967, and we're on our seventh edition. But you don't want to read five pages about the bird. You just want to know a little bit, and that's what we did. It's a little one page of each with a picture. So. Uh, and the other books that I wrote, the Hawaii Audubon uh, sells, and they get a discount from the University of Hawaii Press for those books, Kalea and White Turns. 
And then is there anything that uh, we can do to get people interested in birding? You know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, managing tourism and finding more things to connect people to the culture and the environment here and just to be more respectful and mindful when they come in as, you know, tourists and visitors to the islands. Right. There's some, been some talk for the uh, Hawaii Visitor Bureau to put signs around where the white turns are, like at the International Marketplace. And just some signage that says these are native birds. It, the only we're the only big city that has these seabirds. They don't make a nest, you know that kind of thing. And so people would actually notice them because they see them, but they don't really know what they are. And the same with our Pacific golden plovers. These are amazing birds because we uh, Audubon Hawaii Audubon sponsored a trip to Nome last June to see the chicks and. Um, People just don't know how friendly the plovers are here because they aren't anywhere else in the world. You know, they, they aren't afraid of people, but they are in Alaska. So it's really interesting to know these things. And I think people do notice that and they notice it when we put things, the news items up on the website, which is what I do. Would there be any additional opportunities for visitors to go birding? You know, I mean, whether it's to sign up for things at the the Campbell, you know, refuge there on the North yes. Shore or other places across the state? Yes. Uh, if you go to hawaiiaudubon.org or just go, just search Hawaii Audubon, it'll come up. We have a tab that says what we do. On that tab is tours. And we have several board members who give regular tours. And if they want to do something else, we have information about it. Our director will give send them to other places because there's several other companies that, that do bird tours. Some and- offshore, so... And then you're uh, going to be attending the bird festival in Hilo, uh, which is you know geared toward conservation groups. And so you know there are wildlife centers that help injured birds or uh, help with our native species. Yes, the Hawaii Island uh, Festival of Birds is a Saturday, and that was presented by the Hawaii Wildlife Center and the Conservation Council for Hawaii together. And they have invited other conservation organizations. They will have a information party thing all day on Saturday at the Naniloa. So, so really, on the different islands, there are organizations out there. So if you want to learn about birds, you can reach out and find out yes. more. Yes, Kauai has some and Maui has their own. And we have some board members on the big island. So we're kind of branch, trying to branch out because Hawaii Audubon should include all the islands. Is there anything else? I mean, I know one of the other big issues is the whole thing with the mosquito project to try and uh, beat back the right. you know malaria that is affecting our birds, particularly on Maui, where they're in distress. Do you know the mosqui- a bit about the mosquito project? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they, there was a program that to release male mosquitoes that have a right. natural bacteria that makes them sterile. And so it has been done in other places and really reduces the population. But uh, group on Maui filed a lawsuit to stop that. And that's in the courts right now. So those are those issues that are out there that are playing out. Um, right. But it certainly is an opportunity for the public just to read up on it yes. and understand yes. how our birds are threatened. Right. Anything else you want to mention that you think we should know, that our listeners should know about the conference? So, I mean, anybody can join the Audubon Society? Anybody can join the Audubon Society. It's a bargain. It's $25 a year. And we really are able to do these programs through members' donations and membership. And so on the annual dinner meeting, it's really a great get-together and fun of all friends seeing each other that we haven't seen in a while. I would encourage everybody to look at the website, hawaiiaudubon.org, and it's $45. It's catered by Despot, which tells, which I've heard is great food, and it should be really fun. We get to meet Patrick Hart. <laughs> so there you go, a chance to meet UH Hilo Professor Patrick Hart, who brings us the Manu Minute here on The Conversation every Wednesday. We were hearing from Susan Scott, president of the Hawaii Audubon Society. She was talking to us about uh, the group's upcoming conference at the Bishop Museum next week. There's also a bird festival in Hilo gathering local conservation groups uh, uh, to talk about the challenges and successes of their collective work this weekend. Information will be on our web page later today.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaiian Airlines, introducing the new Boeing 787, featuring custom-designed Lehoku suites to its fleet starting April 2024. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. Tupac Shakur was murdered almost three decades ago, but he has remained a cultural force ever since. He is forever frozen as this really handsome, charismatic, revolutionary type of figure. I'm Brittany Luce, and as a suspect goes on trial for the rapper's murder, we're getting into Tupac's legacy. On the next It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. of art, jewelry, china, and furniture is up for auction this weekend. It's a fundraiser for the Summer Palace, also known as Hanaya Kamalama in Nuuanu Valley and the Hulihe'e Palace in Kona. Oahu Auctions is putting on the event. It ends tomorrow, but you will get a chance to see the items starting at 10 a.m. at the Summer Palace tomorrow. We talked to Manu Powers of the Daughters of Hawaii, whose kuleana is caring for these historic homes. So the auction has been in the works for a long time, and some of these items have been with us for decades, some of them, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. The important thing to remember about the auction, um, there's a couple of things. The first one being that all of the proceeds go to support the organization, so that means keeping the doors open of both Hanaya Kamalama and Hulihe'e Palace. You know, supporting the maintaining of Kauikea Oli's birthstone. So, you know, everything that falls under our operational purview. And we were very careful when we selected the items. You know, each item has been deaccessioned if it was ever part of the collection. Um, but the majority are gifts or items that we've acquired that were donated over the years. So, no historic significance, but some historical pieces and the respect that they're from a particular era or a particular period. Some beautiful things in there, but none of them, you know, are part of the elite collection, a part of the monarch collection. Um, so it's they're essentially items that don't pertain to our story, that don't have any particular history. Um, the provenance has been thoroughly researched, and um, obviously, you and I have discussed at length that we need to, you know, keep the doors open and therefore we have to raise funds. And so this was a way for us to do that. And we only have, you know, a certain amount of space. There's finite room in both of these palaces. And so it was a great way for us to move some stuff out, really make these incredible pieces available to the public and to raise funds. And so on Saturday, the Mm -hmm. public will get a chance to actually see these things up close if they want to? Correct. So you can come to Hanayakamalama between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. You know, in Nu'uanu, um, and view the majority of the items. The whole plate set may not be out, you know, from one particular set of china, but there will be um, items available to see, and most of the furniture actually will be available to actually touch and look at and see. And, and um, there's some really, really special pieces in there. There's some really incredible display items, you know, cabinetry. Um, in particular, there is a koa rocking chair that is available. Um, it is now priced way beyond my price range. <laughs> the bidding has driven it up significantly, but it's still undervalued and just an incredible piece. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it is a fundraiser to help support both of these palaces. Absolutely. So, you know, basic operations, you know, no particular line item in our operating budget, but keeping the doors open ensuring that, you know, we can continue to bring school groups in, keep the palaces staffed. And that's been a real problem in Kona, Hulihe'e. We've had, I think, 14 cruise ships come through this month as they're doing their schedule. And it's been really painful to watch the cruise ship roll into town and know that we did not have a docent available that day or we were understaffed and weren't able to open the doors and get those people, get those visitors into the palace, you know, teach them about our stories, our mo'olelo, and and hopefully get them in the gift shop, too. 
at the end of the tour. Well, so these items, then, you brought over some of them from Kona? Um, actually, some items are in Kona, and some items are at Hanaya Kamalama. The majority are at Hanaya Kamalama, so that's why you'll be able to see the majority of them on Saturday at the viewing if you come up to the palace. But there are a few items in Kona. These items then, were they just what donated to help window dress because they were period pieces? Yeah, in some instances, absolutely. In other instances, they were gifts or bequests of a particular family. For instance, there's uh, the desk of the physician of King Kalakaua. Um, so that is part of the ox. Uh, excuse me, that is part of the auction. You know, it was never in use when King Kalakala was being seen by the physician, but nonetheless, it belongs to the physician or belonged to the physician, um, and his family donated it to us. And so that's a pretty significant piece. It's got this incredible, you know, sort of story that goes along with it. Um, but again, it's really important to state that it was never King Kalakaua's desk or it was never, you know, used in um, his company. And I think when I was scrolling through the OahuAuctions.com, uh, you know, I think there was is it some jewelry that I saw. Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple of really interesting pieces of jewelry in there as well. A lot of really beautiful period chairs like a Victorian Fetty. There's an incredible uh, dark wood armchair. It was given to us in a bequest in 1986. So it's been there in the palace, you know, all this time at Hanaya Kamalama. It's in good condition, but it doesn't pertain to our story. And someone could probably get a lot of joy from it instead of it just sitting in the basement at Hanaya Kamalama. Okay, so this wasn't necessarily something that was there on display in the palace or may have been moved around from time to time. Correct. And, you know, for instance, there's a shelf that we've used to sell our uh, famous jams at all of our community events. So it's a shelf that was in the palace and so therefore on display, but nothing that was shown as a piece of the collection. Anything that was ever a piece of the collection, again, those items have been deaccessioned and are no longer collection items, and they've been researched very heavily. So uh, we feel really comfortable with the items that we're auctioning, and, and I think it's important to sort of use as a point of reference that we did actually remove four items from the auction before the auction was made public. We were just a little gray on whether or not they were historically and culturally significant pieces. Um, and so if we had any question, we pulled them. So we feel and we want the public to feel comfortable in moving these out of the palaces and, and into someone's home, hopefully. And then, gosh, what would you say is the biggest need for the palaces right now? I mean, if this is a fundraiser, I mean, are there major repairs that need to be done um, or basic upkeep? Always, always. And, you know, that varies from Hulihe'e to Hanaya Kamalama. There's always a project that needs our help. And, you know, we, we have a great partner in the state, and they're helping us with things like the seawall in Kona at Hulihe'e Palace. But there's so much more than that. I mean, there's we're in desperate need of display cases for some of the collection items that will you know, forever protect the item and make it available to the public. If we can raise funds to provide the collection with ways in which we can display it appropriately instead of sort of you know, sequestering it in an airtight room or a, a, you know, a, a temperature-controlled room, and instead make it available to be a resource of education for various schools and for the public. That's always been our intention. And that was Manu Powers with the Daughters of Hawaii, the group charged with taking care of two palaces, one here on Oahu and the other on the Big Island. She was talking about a fundraising auction tomorrow. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build general contractor committed to working with homeowners to design and build homes with the future in mind. HomeWorksHawaii.com 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. I'm Willis Barnstone, translator of the Restored New Testament. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my love for poetry and sacred texts. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. The Hawaii Book and Music Festival kicks off this weekend. It will include a mix of live and online events featuring uh, authors, panels, and a writing workshop. HPR is a sponsor of the event, and we can tell you that the force behind the festival, Roger Jelinek, hopes to bring the festival back in person next year. To help fundraise for that effort, there's a benefit concert next week set for October 26th at Orbis Auditorium at the University of Hawaii. It will feature concert pianist Alpen Hong, who moved to the islands a few years ago. He'll be making his debut. Hung is steeped in the classics, but manages to combine his eclectic passions that include popular culture, like video games. So it should be fun. The conversation Stephanie Han spoke with Hong yesterday. So when Roger approached me about doing this festival, and of course, because of COVID, they had gone virtual for several years, they wanted to bring it live. And in my performing career, I've always, with the various outfits that I've visited, um, I've always been interested in kind of the fundraising underwriting aspect of it, because I believe that is the lifeblood of the arts to make sure that there is firm financial foundation so that they can be sustainable. And so he pitched in the ideas like, well, what do you think we could do together? I said, well, at the very beginning, because I know you're not live yet, but what can I do to help you get there? You're a musician who has had a lot of influences, and some of the yeah. things that you're interested in are quite unusual, yeah. i.e. technology and video games, yes. martial arts, extreme sports. We do not associate this <laughs> in our naivete, poten- potentially, we don't associate this with classical music and That's classical musicians. Yes, well, you know, extreme sports and I don't know, breaking fingers uh, is not something what agents or uh, whether or not they're talent agents or insurance agents want to hear. Uh, I have tamped that down a little bit. I'm not as young as I used to be, and I have children now, so I'm kind of connected to the tapestry of life more than I have been before, and I have more regard for my own health. But you know, I'm a child of the 80s, and you know, the Nintendo Entertainment System came out when I was eight years old. And even when I was practicing piano, uh, sorry, I started when I was four years old, it was very hard for Bach and Beethoven and Mozart to compete with Mario, Zelda, and Metroid in these games that I came up. Of course, now gaming has become a recognized art form in its own with incredible music attached. And, and so that evolution, I really found makes it very useful for me in communicating with younger audiences. Uh, the fact that I can make those connections between the master works and the master composers of yesteryear and the popular music that they're, that they're hearing today in television and movie and video games. And I think that's probably the reason why I still have a performing job because you know, when I go into a community, even one that has may not even be fans of classical music, uh, I always try to put something in my program that that tweaks their memory and brings them back to something that they recognize. And in this particular program, it will be uh, a medley in the stuck in the middle of a very famous classical piece, Malagueña, is uh, used to be a favorite encore of Vladimir Horowitz. Uh, but I'm putting my own spin on it, putting a Star Wars and Harry Potter and Spider Man and Super Mario in there for all those people that are listening. That's great. So what is the link between these masters of the past and the Nintendo theme song or Harry Potter? I mean, what is the link? Uh, the link, of course, is a lot of it is, is in the music, the harmony that underlies it, the rhythms, the cultural references sometimes. I was just explaining to a group of high school students near Seattle just this last weekend, and I was using the swimming part when Mario starts swimming in any video game. It turns into a waltz in three beats. One, two, three, one, two, three. Da, 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 And that kind of, that feeling of three, that extra beat has always been used in popular 
genres like like movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, is in three da da dum ba bum 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 to describe kind of uh, unstable things like water. And of course, that classical waltz is a, is a classic Viennese dance based on that. And so the very fact that that is being used in a video game like that, it belies this this change of feeling from the more 4-4 stable thing about Mario walking on land. Oh, that's fascinating. What you're saying then is when the Mario character enters this kind of fantasy state, he actually is moving back in time musically to a classical music period. So it's like a time jump. It is. And of course, time jumps are in so many popular media these days. The multiverse, of course, is in everything. You almost can't watch any popular media these days without having some multiverse of some kind. And what I always try to present is a cultural context for music. So what I find is that the fact that we are maybe several generations removed from classical music being played everywhere and just kind of in the national and popular consciousness means I think it it takes a little bit of context, for example, to know what is an orchestra, what makes up the orchestra, why are certain instruments used to to create certain emotional responses from people? You know, what are, what are the, the technical limitations of a violin that makes violin virtuosity so incredible and impressive to see that they're able to only use four strings to be able to create this blizzard of incredible notes? Even describing what a grand piano is. And a lot of people may not realize a grand piano is the most sophisticated digital input device until the invention of the computer. There are 30,000 moving parts in it. Uh, There's a reason why piano technicians are incredibly highly technically skilled craftsmen. When you take all those things and and like, I think the Hawaii Book and Music Festival is, is wonderful and it relates back to that, is that a lot of the music festivals I've seen, the entire point of it is to increase knowledge and to open your mind to different worlds, different spaces, different narratives, and different music. One of your themes, then, it seems to me, is a concept of inclusivity. Absolutely, yes. And the idea that anyone can participate. So tell me, how did you come to participate in this world of classical music? Uh Was it willing? Was it unwilling? Did you have... Parents who are pushy. I have a very simple to? answer for that. What? And uh, as for many kids in my generation, my mom made me. <laughs> uh, you know, there aren't many four-year-olds who are like, "Oh, I would like to dedicate most of my day to being alone in a room with a." an instrument slaving over playing all these little black dots in the right order. Uh, And I told you video games came out when I was young, too, so I I had that pulling me away as well. But yes, I I think that my my parents considered classical music to be uh, Western civilization's one of its highest accomplishments. They were post-war Korean, not refugees necessarily, but they came in that wave of immigration that uh, happened in the 70s. My father came here in 72. I was born in New Jersey in 76. Shortly after the birth of my younger brother, uh, we moved to a town, Kalamazoo in Battle Creek, Michigan, you know, relatively small towns where we were the only, uh, some of the very few Koreans that were in town. And, you know, now we live in the only Asian majority state in the union. And so this has been a massive cultural shift to just see how different that is. And there's, uh, this is obvious to anyone who, who becomes a citizen here, even after a few months, that connection to history is so deep and so pervasive and it's everywhere and it's impossible to ignore. But it's also so beautiful because it really allows this sense of togetherness that there is no one on the outside. You know, if you're if you are open to just, you know, kind of breaking down those barriers that we erect between ourselves and, you know, and other groups of people, that aloha spirit, as they call it, that, that context of ohana, a family, that we're all in it together. As an artist, that's an amazing place to flourish, right? Because it, there's, there's safety in it. And when you, when you feel safe, you can create. It's very hard to create if you are struggling to survive. Right. Saying also that safety is key to creativity, to growth, yes. to understanding. Yeah. Obviously, there are, uh, great works of art do come from, you know, areas, times and, and 
occasions of, of great pain and strife, you know, Russian music, you know, under Stalin was, you know, particularly uh, incredible because they were, you know, they were railing against these chains that were really put over their artistry internally in order to have that creative impulse to be able to want to add the pantheon of literature or music or visual artistry. There is a certain inner confidence and peace you need to be able to take that risk to do that and sometimes people have to go you do have to go through many painful places to get there but when it happens and that creative impulse hits if you're in a if you are in a safe place to do that where you have the time to concentrate on it that's when I think really profound things happen is there anything that you'd like to add well I just want to make a personal plug to for anybody who uh, doesn't have plans next Thursday night to come to hear this concert. It is my debut in Oahu. I've had the privilege of playing in all of the other islands multiple times, but this is my live solo concert debut, and I am planning to bring the roof down. So uh, awesome. whether or not you are a piano fan, whether or not you're a classical fan, if you just want to have your mind blown for an evening, please join us and support this wonderful cause. One of the pieces, the, the first piece I'm going to play, uh, the name of the campaign is called Creative Spark 2.0, uh, relaunching the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. So there literally is a piece that I learned just for this program called Etinchel, which in French means sparks by the um, composer Moskowski. And then the whole point is that uh, I'm marketing myself as breaking barriers, which is that's what the Hawaii Book and Music Festival does. It breaks down barriers. And so I'm going to play one of the weirdest themes and variations ever, but it's based on perhaps the most famous variation theme of all time by Paganini. You know, that A minor theme. But this this piece is truly wild, and it's called Desperate Measures. And then the finale is going to be the greatest piece ever written for the piano by an American, Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Aloha. This weekend's Hawaii Book and Music Festival has a series of live and hybrid events, so get your tickets. Classical pianist Alpin Hong is performing on Thursday, October 26th for the Hawaii Book and Music Festival fundraiser. All the information will be on our website later today. That does it for us for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we get little fire ant updates from the different counties. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. John DeMello provided our backyard quiz chant and our theme music. Thanks to Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us Monday. Pick up the conversation.